Thanks for joining us. Ruth is a story of rebellion, repentance, redemption, and restoration. It lays out an incredible narrative that mirrors our story, with God redeeming us, His people. We'll see how human decisions ultimately carry out the plans of God and how Jesus shows up in the ordinary and mundane details of our lives. For more information, please visit doxa-church.com. Ruth, chapter 4, verse 13 through 22. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you in this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and lay him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amminadab. Amminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we are coming to the end of our Ruth series. Have you guys enjoyed it? That's short, I know, but it's a short book, so we're coming to the end of it. Uh, As we're going to come to a close. I want to look at the text again here in these last few verses. So I want to make sure you all have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible and would like a Bible, raise your hand. Someone will bring one to you. Raise your hand nice and high because we want to make sure everyone's got a Bible. If you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to keep this Bible as your own and take it home with you. While they're doing that, I want to remind you of what's happened. Just rehearse the story again. Uh, There was a famine in Bethlehem, which is uh, known as the House of Bread, ironically. Uh, Elimelech and Naomi, with their two sons, flee to Moab. Instead of staying in God's place with God's people for God's provision, they go take matters in their own hands and, and take off to a land that is not a land that believes in in God, is not following the God Yahweh, the God of Israel. And uh, they experience uh, things go from bad to worse. Uh, Elimelech dies. Naomi's sons marry uh, uh, two unbelieving women, Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. Uh, Then the sons die, and now you've got Naomi, a widow, without any any sons, two daughter-in-laws. She encourages them, go back to your own home. You're better off there. Maybe you'll get rest there and maybe you'll get husbands there. Uh, Ruth says, no way, I'm with you. Uh, She refuses and has really a conversion to Yahweh, to the God of Israel. And uh, she makes this statement not only in her conversion to Yahweh, but to God's people and specifically to Naomi. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge, your people shall be my people, your God, my God, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And this covenant statement of Ruth to Naomi mirrors the covenant statement of God to his people, where he says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. It's a, a no matter what kind of 
covenant. And it's supposed to be a picture of the kind of covenant we are to have with God and with others. In fact, this picture throughout the Bible is this story of God pursuing his bride, the church, us, his people, and having a no matter what kind of commitment to us. What, what the word is hesed in the Hebrew, that he is committed and absolutely devoted to us regardless of what we do. And, and this is supposed to be mirrored in our marriages. That's why we say, till death do us part when we take our vows. It's also su- supposed to be mirrored in the way we covenant to one another as the church. It's why we say we aren't just a, a, an event. We, the church isn't a building. The church is a family, and we are brothers and sisters devoted to one another in a covenant kind of relationship. And so the entire story of Ruth is about this covenant, this hesed love, covenant faithfulness. And it's ultimately about God's covenant faithfulness being worked out in the worst of situations, showing that he is providentially working behind the scenes to bring things together. He's able to do, like Romans says, work all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's the overarching narrative of the story of Ruth. And the thing I kind of want you to think about is this idea as we close this book that Ruth is a story of how God restores the empty to fullness. Ruth is a story of how God restores the empty to fullness. And I want you to ask yourself, what's my story? Where, where have I seen God restore? Where have I seen God fill? Where have I seen God heal? Where have I seen God bring what was broken and bring healing to that brokenness, bring what was hopeless and bring hope to the hopelessness, bring what felt empty and see God fill it with his presence and provision. What's your story? And maybe, maybe you're in a place today where you're going like, yeah, Jeff, I'm, I'm not, I can't say that I can point to God doing that yet in my life, or it feels like I'm in a season where I'm wanting God to do that right now in my life. I feel, feel empty. I feel hopeless. I feel discouraged. I feel lonely. I, I, I need God to do what he did for Ruth in my life, what he did for Naomi in my life, what he did for Boaz in my life. And I, I want to I just encourage you today that God restores our broken stories in community, we're going to get to that, so that we can tell his story to others. God restores our broken stories in community. Now, I don't want you to lose that. A lot of you are dealing with the challenges you're facing right now in isolation. And you're here in this room so you won't leave alone. You'll leave in community with a group of people who know the God who providentially works all things together for good to those who, are, who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's, that's what we hope for. We hope that you leave here today with a great deal of hope and expectation for how God is going to fill the emptiness, heal the brokenness, restore what is lost. Now, Donald last week shared that he had the privilege, and as I was listening to him preach, I realized I gave him the best text of the whole series, and I was a little jealous. Uh, He said he he got to speak the climax, and, and he's right. To some degree, last week's message was the climax of the story, but it wasn't the end of the story. Because, yeah, Ruth has a, has a husband, Boaz has a wife, Naomi has a kinsman redeemer, restored their land, but there's still no baby. And so the whole story begs the question, are we going to get a baby? Is a son going to be born to us? 
And you guys already know the answer because we just read the text. But, but I want you to kind of put yourself in their story. Boaz is an older man, so there's no guarantee there's a baby coming. Right? He's, he's, he's a little bit older. And the story that you see over and over again through the narrative of God's word is you'll see God take barrenness and bring about fruitfulness in the most unlikely situations. And so in some ways, that's what we're, we're presented here with. We, yes, we have a younger woman, but we have an older man. And who knows if this man can bring forth the seed to produce a baby. So we don't know that. Okay, it kind of leaves us in, it kind of to imagine. Yes, we hope so. Of course, we, now we, we read the passage, so you know, but I want to slow down a little bit and pay attention to the prayer that Donald ended with last week in verses 11 and 12. Look in your Bibles so that you can see it as I read it. May the Lord make the woman, Ruth, who's coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, remember those names, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah, and be renowned in Bethlehem, and may your house be like the house of Perez, remember that name, whom Tamar, remember that name, bore to Judah, remember that name. So five names, Rachel, Leah, Perez, Tamar, Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this woman. Why all the names? And by the way, why do they end with a genealogy? And I know a lot of you, when you're reading your Bibles, you go, oh, it's just a list of names, I'm gonna move past it. Don't make that mistake. Every time there are names like this, there are cues to the larger story. Every time there's a genealogy, they're trying to wake you up. And you would know it. It'd be like if, if we were sitting down with you over dinner and you're, you started talking, you said, yeah, it's like my great-great-grandfather and, and his son and, and my grandpa. And, and you kind of walk through it. And everybody would know as soon as you said their names, you go, oh yeah, we know what you're talking about because we know your story. We know your family history. And when you said that name, all of a sudden a whole lot comes to mind. Just a few weeks ago, we found out someone in our missional community is, is fairly famous. There's a movie about his family. And so he, he was just, he was just you know, casually telling us a little bit about his story. And he said, if you want to know more about me, here's the movie you could watch. I'm like, that's pretty crazy. And so we, sure enough, we all said, we're going to watch the movie. After we watched the movie and I sat down with him, we sat down with him at dinner. The next week, I'm going, you, I have a whole different concept of who you are now. Because I know your story. And that's what's going on here is there's a story that's the backdrop of this entire narrative. And up until now, you have heard me tell you the story of Ruth as a Moabite and the story of Naomi as one who, with her husband, rebelled against God, but repented and returned home. But you haven't heard us tell the story of Boaz yet. And in some ways, the, the narrator, narrator waits till the end to say, now let me, let me kind of invite you in to something that's really significant that's been going on behind the scenes all along. The family line of Boaz starts in this particular narrative with the ladies Rachel and Leah. How many of you are familiar with Rachel and Leah? Okay, it's important that you know this because otherwise it doesn't make as much sense in terms of why they're saying, may you be blessed like them. See, Rachel and Leah were the, the wives of Jacob, also known as the deceiver, okay? He eventually gets his name changed to Israel, uh, but if you know the story of Jacob, who is a deceiver, you, re you remember that he wanted to marry uh, this beautiful woman named Rachel, his uncle's uh, daughter. There were two daughters, Rachel and Leah. And he worked seven years to get the hand of Rachel. On his wedding night, goes into the tent uh, to basically consummate the marriage. Of course, she's covered up. He can't see her. It's dark. Uh, he wakes up the next morning laying next to who? Not Rachel, Leah. 
And of course, he didn't really like Leah. She wasn't very attractive. She was a little di- kind of hard on the eyes, as it says in the text. Uh, that's, she also didn't have the best eyes herself, I guess. But So he wakes up, thinking he's with Rachel, wakes up next to Leah and goes to Laban and says, what are you doing? The deceiver gets deceived, right? A little bit of God's humor in this uh, in some ways. Uh, and then he says, I-, I wanted Rachel, not Leah. Now, can you imagine being Leah? Like spending all night with a man, giving yourself to him, and now she's being rejected once he realizes who she is? Okay, this is a bigger narrative, okay? Because that, that's, that's a bigger narrative of what it feels like to be outside of the family of God and God go, I want Leah. Okay, some of you feel that way today. Like, man, I wonder, would God want me? I feel at times like I'm the one he rejected. No, he wants to call you to himself. He loves you. He cares for you. You're in this room because he wants to make a relationship with you so powerfully full of love and kindness in your life that, that you go, I don't want to go anywhere else. I want to be with this God forever. And so that's, that's some of the narrative that's going behind the scenes. Well, Laban says, okay, you can have Rachel, but you have to work seven more years. So 14 years of labor for two women. Uh, he ends up getting uh, Rachel, of course, and God closes Rachel's womb but opens Leah's womb because he sees how she's been treated. And so, of course, uh, she bears uh, six sons to Jacob and one daughter. And Rachel is praying and pleading with God for 14 years she is barren. And God finally hears her prayers, opens her womb, and she ends up having two sons. Uh, So we got eight sons total uh, born to Jacob through these two ladies, and then four other sons are born through their handmaids. And we won't get into those stories. That's another mess in the family of Jacob, okay? One of those sons' name is Judah. It's actually Leah's son. Some of you are familiar with the tribe of Judah, Okay, so Leah has a boy named Judah. Judah marries a Canaanite woman. Now, if you know much about that, the Canaanites are the cursed family line of Ham. Remember Noah's son who exposed him when he was drunk and whole other story there we're not gonna get into. But by the way, if you read the Bible, you realize the entire narrative is about a bunch of messed up people. And the only one that's right is God at the end of the day, like all the time. So, uh, so this, this woman then bears Judah three sons, and Judah takes for his wife, uh, or, I'm sorry, takes for his son, Ur, uh, a wife. This wife, her name is Tamar. So Tamar marries the, the firstborn son of Judah and his Canaanite wife. Uh, but Ur is, is wicked and God takes his life. Then Judah instructs his secondborn son, Onan, to have sex with Tamar in order to fulfill the Leverite law, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. But he didn't want to give offspring to his brother, so every time they had sex, he spilled his seed. I'm going to say it that way because it's PG that way. Uh, So God put him to death as well. So then Judah tells Tamar, I've got one son left, but he's really young, so you're just going to have to wait till he gets older, till he grows up. Judah's wife dies along the way. In his grief, Judah decides, I'm going to go hang out with a bunch of sheep shearers, and I'm going to sleep with a prostitute. So Tamar is told this, that her, her father-in-law, whom again, remember, she's not, she's not had a baby yet, and her, her father-in-law is going to go sleep with a prostitute. So she goes and covers herself up, dresses like a prostitute, goes to the place where the sheep shearers are, and sleeps with her father-in-law, Okay. Amazing story, right? This is like the stuff of movies, okay? And, but before she does, she says, I want to pledge for your payment because you don't have money with you right now. We don't, they didn't have a, a credit card swiper in, the, in those days. So, so basically says, I want your staff, I want your signet ring, and I want a cord that kind of represents your, your family. So she gets all three of those and says, I'll give those back to you once you make payment. 
Sure enough, Tamar gets pregnant with twins, okay? And we'll get to those two in a minute. But along the way, Judah finds out my daughter-in-law has slept with somebody else. Take her out and burn her in front of everybody. So they bring her out and she says, basically, by the, the man who owns this staff, this signet ring, and this cord, I have become pregnant. To which Judah realizes, I'm the man. Okay? And he says in front of everybody, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. That's his third son. So then Tamar gives birth to twins, Perez and Zerah. And this is what we read today. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amminadab. Amminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Note, how did, how did, how did Boaz come to be? Who's his mom? Rahab. The prostitute. Okay, now this is his family line. I, mean, I don't know if you're paying attention. Like, this is a mess. And the whole time you should be, like, we've been reading the story going, Boaz is a, a man of valor. He's a, a worthy man. He's a godly man. He's a covenant-keeping man. And then you realize his story is as, as bad as Ruth's. Now, I love that because here's what's going on in this prayer of blessing. May, may you be blessed like Leah and Rachel. What, what, what is going on? The women are saying, we worship the God who takes outsiders and makes them insiders. We worship the God who takes enemies and makes them into family. We worship the God who turns curses into blessings. We worship the God who takes sinful actions and redeems them for good. We worship the God who takes empty and makes them full, brings the lonely into community, takes the bitter and makes them pleasant again, turns famine into flourishing and enables the barren to conceive. May he do all of that and more for Ruth and Boaz. That's the prayer. See, if you just heard, may you be blessed like, like Rachel and Leah, you're like, oh, I don't know what that means. When you know their story, you're like, Man, they're asking for a lot because they believe in a God who can take the worst situation and make it beautiful. They know a God who can redeem sinful people and use them for his glory. I mean, this is the story of our God, amen? This is our story. And it's my prayer for us, Doxa, that as we end Ruth, that some of you might feel like you don't belong and I want you to hear this. God takes the lonely and he puts them in families. Some of you, you feel like, man, I just I feel like an enemy of God. And God loves to turn enemies into children who he dearly loves. Some of you, you feel like, man, my life is just one curse after another, but God loves to take curses and turn them into blessings. Some of you feel lonely and empty and bitter or spiritually famished. And I want you to know that God wants to fill you. He wants to restore you. He wants to heal you. He wants to change your story. He wants to rewrite it today. Some of you are barren right now. You just feel dry and empty. You feel like there's just no spiritual fruit. You just wish that would change. Like, I'm so tired, weary, I'm overwhelmed. He, wa he wants to fill you up. He wants to restore you. He wants to strengthen you. He wants to change your story. And some of you are physically barren. There are people in the room right now who are saying, I, I, we want a baby. Or we think we want a baby, but God, will you give us one? And I, I just want you to know your story's not over yet. No one in the room has got their story finished yet. It's still being written. Still being written. And it's not done. And God has more than you could ever ask or imagine ahead for you. 
But he doesn't do it in isolation. He does it through the covenant community. He does it through the people of God. He does it through the church. If you get anything out of this whole series, I mean, there's a lot of things I want you to get, but what I want you to really get is Ruth and Naomi do not get the fullness in isolation. They get it in community. They have to come together, be with people who will be the means by which God answers the prayers. I want to make sure this is really clear. God almost never answers a prayer without it including a person. He almost never answers a prayer without it including a person or a people that God uses to minister to your need. And so if you're doing everything you can to run to Moab away from the presence of God where his people want to serve you and help you, I can tell you until you return to God and his people, you're not gonna experience the way of fullness that God wants to bring about in your life. That's why it's so important that we're together, that we're in community, that we're in mission be a part of a missional community where people know you and care for you and can walk through life with you. Along the way, I've been reading a book by Paul Miller called The Loving Life. He writes another book called The Praying Life. Uh, I, I wanna show you the, the book here because I highly recommend it. This, is, this book is all about the story of Ruth, but it's really how do we grow in our love for God and love for one another? And, and it uses the whole narrative of this story. And so if you're wanting to dig in deeper, great book, highly recommended, very easy and enjoyable to read. So it's not a commentary, it's, a, it's an enjoyable, like practical application book for you. So I highly recommend it. Uh, and you can actually just text resource to the number and we'll give you the, actually the link so you can find it that way if you wanna do that. Uh, but I, along the way in chapter 14, on his chapter on love creates community, Paul Miller writes this. The biggest problem people have in searching for the perfect community is just that. You don't find community you create it through love. Look how this transforms the way you enter into a room of strangers. Our instinctive thought is, who do I know? Who am I comfortable with? There's nothing wrong with those questions, but the Jesus questions that create communities are, who can I love? Who's left out? Instinctively, we hunt for a church or community that makes us feel good. It's good to be in a place where you're welcome, but making that quest central is idolatry. And like all idolatry, it ultimately disappoints But if we pursue hesed love, covenant faithful love, then wherever we go, we create community. And so I don't know where you're at here, but a lot of us, we're looking for a church where we're like, I'm just looking for community where, you know, it's like, how many are old enough to know the, the, the show Cheers, right? Where everyone knows my name. Well, just remember, that was a very codependent, broken community, okay? Because everybody was coming for themselves. And then they used the bar and the relationships for themselves, And the church is not that way. We come and we say, how can I love? How can I give? How can I serve? And because the reality is true Hesed love creates community and it's in the covenant community that we are actually restored. And the crazy thing about the kingdom is it always feels upside down or opposite from the world, right? Jesus says stuff like this. If you you wanna be the greatest, be the least. If you wanna really be a leader, be a servant, And he he just, he turns everything upside down. And some of you might be thinking, if I show up and I think primarily, how can I love? How can I serve? How can I give myself away? But what about me? What about my needs? How am I gonna get cared for? How am I gonna have my needs met? And and I want you to hear Jesus's words in Matthew 16. He says this, if anyone would come after me, this means if you're a follower of Jesus, so everybody who says they follow Jesus, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
Jesus is saying, you want, you want to actually have your needs most fully met? Give your life away. You want to have the most fulfilling life there is? Die to yourself. You, you want to really understand that the, the fullness of life in everything you do? In everything you do, ask, how can I serve others, not just serve myself? Like that, that's the heart of the kingdom of God and it's so counterintuitive to the world because the world keeps telling you all day long it's all about you and it's all for you. And the kingdom of God says, no, if you live that way, you will lose your life. If you'll give your life away, for my sake, Jesus says, you'll gain it. And that's exactly what Ruth and Boaz did. They gave themselves away and then they got the fullness of God. That's how it works. That's why we say all the time around here, we're not, we're not consumers, we're contributors. We're not coming here just to take, 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 take. We're coming to give, and in the giving, we receive. And that's how it does work, I promise you. Some of you are going like, I don't believe you. I've been taken advantage of, people have used me. I, I will tell you, in the name of Jesus, if you will faithfully commit yourself to a community of people and ask God, how might I serve and give my life away for them, I promise you, God will pour into your life multitudes of blessings that no, no, other, no other pursuit will give you promise you that because Jesus is true and his word is faithful and he doesn't lie it changed both of their stories listen verse 13 so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her don't miss this the Lord gave her conception she bore a son notice who gives conception the Lord the Lord gives conception God's the hero of the story at the end of the day. God brings forth the redeemer. And I, I, I want to say this even in this cultural moment. Let's be really clear. Life begins at conception according to God's word. Okay? That's very clear. God gave her conception, gave her a redeemer. I don't have the time to give you all the passages in scripture because there, there's too many, but they all keep saying God is the one who gives life at the moment of conception. Okay? And so we cannot shrink back on this as we stand up for those who can't stand up for themselves. And it also includes us coming around single moms who need a community to love them through those hard and difficult decisions. It includes us being willing to adopt or at least support those who adopt or those who foster and support those who foster. We have to be an alternative community in the world that says we will deny ourselves for the sake of others so that we don't just have a rhetoric that we're pro-life, but we live out a sanctity of life in absolutely everything we do. Amen? God gives conception. Janie and I struggled for many, many years. There's some of you in the room who are struggling, wanting so badly for a baby, and we lost our first after three years, and then it took us about uh, six more years. Is that right? Six more years, seven uh, more years to have our, our firstborn, Haley. It was a hard journey. A lot of embarrassing moments that I won't go into there in that process uh, as a man, you know, just feeling what's wrong with me. And God gave us conception. And God gave us three beautiful children. God gives. God gives. And the women respond, Naomi they say, "Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer." Verse 14. And may his name be renowned in Israel. 
He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you. Oh man, what a great statement about Ruth. Your daughter-in-law who loves you, Naomi. She loves you. Hesed love, covenant community love, never giving up love. Who is more to you than seven sons. Remember, that's the number of completion as we've talked about a few weeks ago. She's saying, like, this is the best it gets, Naomi. You got the best has given birth to him. Then Naomi, Naomi, I just want you to think of this woman. She's lost her husband. She's lost her son. She's got no kids, no grandkids. At the beginning of the story, she's bitter, hopeless, empty. Now she's got a child and they lay him on her lap and she becomes his nurse, it says in the story. This is her son now. Fundamentally, Ruth knew she was giving birth to Naomi's son. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. They, they blessed the Lord. They realized this is Yahweh's doing, that God has given a son to Naomi through Boaz and Ruth, that through this, God has produced a redeemer, a, a leveret son for Malon and the heir of Emelech who will carry on the family name and bring, bring about a new beginning for this broken home. Obed. And you know what the word Obed means? It means servant. Servant. What an appropriate name to give the offspring of two servants, Boaz and Ruth, who laid down their own lives for the sake of someone else. And so their offspring is known for what they did. That's really powerful. In fact, I know Donald talked about it a little bit last week. I just want to bring it back up. You, you want to leave a legacy Parents especially, you don't expect your kids to carry on a legacy that you didn't live out. Now God in his grace can rewrite their story even if you mess it up. You might be putting all kinds of money like Janie and I say we should have into counseling fund because they'll need it later. But, but the things that we do together, the things that we do together produces offspring and not just physical, spiritual offspring. What's the legacy you want to pass on? Ruth and Boaz pass on the legacy of servant. Serving others at the cost of our own interests. Ruth serves Naomi. Boaz serves Ruth. Both serve God. And as a result, the name servant is renowned in their family. Imagine that. Be like, so what's your family known for? That's why I asked the question earlier. What is your family known for? What are they famous for? If someone were to write your family story, what would be the key objectives that stand out, or adjectives that stand out? How would they describe you? See, Obed is, is, is the fruit of covenant faithful love expressed through serving one another. I just want to pause here and say the sure way for you to stay in a place of spiritual famine is to live life only for yourself. Say that again. The sure way to remain in a state of spiritual famine is to live life only for yourself. The sure way to put yourself in the place where God can pour out his spiritual blessing and fullness is to live a life out of love for God in service for one another. The sure way to experience the fullness of God, satisfy the spiritual hunger of your heart, is to say, God, out of love for you, I want to be available to serve others. 
Doxa, would it be that the city would say, yeah, that church called Doxa, they should have called themselves servants of the king because that's what they're known for. They serve this community out of their love for Jesus. And I, I would hope there'd be a day that, that if we ever had to leave the downtown core, that people would say, I don't know if we can handle this church leaving because they do too much good in this city. By the way, I don't think that's true yet. I mean, I, we're doing a lot of good, but I think there's a whole lot more good to be done. A whole lot more good to be done. And, 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 and you know that, that that's true because when I say it, you're going, yeah, I don't really know what I'm doing. Then there's a whole lot more good to be done. Right, if you can't think immediately, I know if I wasn't here, what would, what would be missing on the east side in terms of the way that the king of, the king of kings is serving the city through his people? I know what would be lacking if I moved away. And so, so it hurts every time a member leaves because the city goes, that's one more servant we lost in our city. You guys are watching the news. You know, um, I'm not gonna go all political, but I will say this. Uh, in light of the statement of re, re, getting rid of tax-exempt status for churches that Beto made uh, a few days ago, uh, what, what, in some ways we should go like, well, if, if we're not doing that much good, then we shouldn't get a tax-exempt status, right? But if we're doing so much good that if you took it away, the city would suffer, then the city would be stupid to take it away. But I don't, know if the, I don't know the answer to that yet completely. And I would just like to say, could we actually be the answer to that? Could we say, hey, who cares about the political arguments and debates going on? Minimally, let's be so, do so much good in this region that the world would say, we gotta make it easier for the church to serve the city because without the church, we're all no good. Amen? Amen? You guys are getting better at clapping, but it still feels like a golf clap. But it's all right. Maybe you're all golfers. Uh, verse 16, Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. That's how it ends. I mean, it's just like, have you ever been in a, how many, how many have had the privilege of holding a little baby while it's sleeping? After it's had a, a wonderful meal, right? It's just like, you know, and you're just like, oh, yeah. I mean, some of my favorite moments with my kids is after they nursed and I'm holding them, just, you know, they're just so, so sweet. Smell so good. Well, it's like diapers been cleaned, of course. Uh, just, just, that's how it ends. It's like everyone who's been in that moment goes, oh, wow, peace, fulfillment, satisfaction, joy. That's how the story ends. Bitter, Naomi is now rested, filled, satisfied enjoying the fruit of the love of God in Hesed, covenant faithfulness. And he's given a name, Obed, and here's the question, what happens next? You guys read it, so you know. Obed eventually has Jesse, and Jesse has David, and everybody who's reading this story already has King David as their king, just to be clear. Even though it happened beforehand, they're reading it while they have King David. And in that day, King David is everything they always hoped for in a king because they had Saul and he was a bit terrible. Now, to be clear, David is not perfect and we don't have time to go into all of his mess. Uh, but talk about a legacy. It doesn't just end with a nursing baby. It ends with a, a dynasty, a king who has his heart after God's own heart. 
A man who seeks God, a man who loves God, a man who, who sins terribly and repents humbly, boldly, because he knows the grace of this God can handle the brokenness and sin of his rebellion. I mean, read the Psalms, especially those written by King David, when he, he's crying out, knowing he's full of sin, and yet he knows there's a Savior, there's a God who forgives, who accepts, who extends mercy and grace and loving kindness, even when he doesn't deserve it. How does he know that? Not just because of his own person and his own experience, because his whole family story is all about that. Every one of them has experienced the grace and mercy of God. And notice what the women say to Naomi about Obed. May his name be renowned in Israel. See, there isn't a person who doesn't know this story in Israel in David's day. Every one of them knows the story of little Obed, the servant of God, who is the result of two servants, Boaz and Ruth, who gave their lives in service to one another, and God brought about a beautiful dynasty through their service. You, you can imagine David sitting on his grandpa's knee, Grandpa Obed, you know, and he's like, hey, buddy, I'm gonna tell you about my story. Do you know how I came about? And David's going like, yeah, Grandpa, you tell me this every time we're together. I don't ever want you to forget. Let me tell you about Ruth, or let me tell you about Leah and Rachel, and let me tell you about Judah and Tamar. And he's going, Grandpa, these are embarrassing stories. Why do you keep telling me all these gross stories? You know, because they would be. And let me tell you about Rahab, great-great-grandpa's wife, who was a prostitute, and God redeemed her. And, and let me tell you about, remember Ruth? And remember Naomi? And David's going, yeah, 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 I know. But I guarantee you, later on in life, when, when Samuel's looking for the king, and he passes over all of Jesse's sons, and they're like, Don't, isn't there another son? And they're like, yeah, it's, he's out in the fields. He's kind of ruddy. He's, he's the young guy. Well, bring him in. And you remember that. Samuel says, God doesn't look at the outward appearance like man does. He looks at the heart. And he sees the heart of David and he says, this is the king. And I'm, I'm sure David is rehearsing in his mind as he's hearing those words. You know what? God takes the people who are overlooked and oftentimes are not the first in line to be considered and he chooses to work through the unlikely people. I'm sure David's rehearsing that story that his grandpa's told him and says, I think this is one of those moments. And as he's about to face Goliath, I'm sure David's thinking, I, I, I know that grandpa told me about how our family made it through so many difficult things. This is not too difficult for God. And as, as he's thinking about getting a friend like a Jonathan who's devoted to him like, like the, the best friend you could ever have. And I'm sure he's going, God, this is kind of like what Ruth was like to Boaz. And Boaz was like to Ruth. Like my, my family understands friendship and I need it. And I'm sure as he's running for his life from Saul because Saul is so jealous and wants to kill him that he's probably thinking, oh, I know that God can protect you in the most horrible situations because he's done that for my family over and over and over again. And I'm sure as he's agonizing over his adultery and then the, the consequence of that and, and having a baby and then murdering the husband of Bathsheba, he's probably thinking, I know that God can work all things together for good even through people who sin against him. And so he cries out, have mercy on me, oh God. How does he know to do that? Because his story tells him he can do it. Obed's name is renowned and his story is known so that David can grow up with a legacy that's all about God and his faithfulness and his kindness and his mercy and his loving kindness expressed in all of our situations, no matter how broken they are. 
What's your story? Do you know it? Have you ever stopped and rehearsed the faithfulness of God to get you into this room today? You're here because of the providential hand of God at work behind the scenes through your story. And do people know your story? Do you, do you have a story that you want to make renown? Like you want to make the name of God renowned through your story? Is that the case for you? Is he the hero of your story? A few weeks ago with my DNA group, we were talking about how do we have more conversations with people who don't yet know the good news of Jesus. And I, I gave one of the guys an assignment. I said, I want to encourage you this week to just ask at least one person if they have a faith story. Say, hey, do you have a faith story? And if they go like, I don't even know what you're talking about, then you get to explain. And if they say yes, here's what it is. Or I don't really have faith in anything. And then you get to maybe help them understand they do. They trust in something, something, someone. But I said, here's what's gonna happen. When you ask them that question, they'll hopefully turn around and say, well, what's your faith story? And sure enough, that's what happened. He got the opportunity to share his story of Jesus changing his life. Family, I'd love for you all to do that. Little assignment. Go ask somebody what their faith story is this week. Some of you maybe don't know their story yet. A neighbor, a coworker, a classmate. What's your, what's your faith? Do you have a faith story? See what they tell you. And then be ready to tell them yours. And the good news is, your story is not yet finished. It's still being written. And the good news about this is that every week you could tell a new version of it if you're paying attention to the work of God in your life. Because you could say, oh man, I gotta tell you how my story changed a little bit this last week. I saw another thing that God did, another thing he's teaching me. And we should be the kind of people who regularly get together in DNA groups or missional communities or in this gathering who are saying, I can't wait to tell you how, I, how God's continuing to write my story. In fact, there's a new chapter this last week. Let me tell you about it. And then we tell it in such a way that we make him the hero, not us. See, because Obed in this story, because it doesn't end with Obed, and it doesn't even end with David. Obed is not the ultimate servant. David is not the ultimate king. Obed the servant and David the king point forward to the ultimate servant king who, who acts justly, who loves mercy, who gives sacrificially and will reign eternally. And his name is Jesus. See, Jesus redeemed the entire family line. If you read, do this maybe this afternoon, read Matthew's genealogy. And he does the genealogy of Jesus from Abraham to David, David to Joseph to Jesus. And in it, he concludes some notorious women. It's my favorite genealogy of Jesus's. Because he says, he tells us about Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and then he ends with Mary, who, if you don't know the story, was considered someone who cheated on her husband and gave birth to Jesus. Jesus was known in his community as the son of a Roman soldier. That was his reputation growing up, because mom cheated on dad, but is too afraid to tell us the truth. This is Jesus' story. And if, if these people could be in Jesus' family line, anybody can, Right? I mean, that, that is the narrative of the Bible, is God saying, come one, come all. You're not too broken for me to heal. You're not too far for me to save. You're not too evil for me to bless. Come, be a part of my family, and I will pay the cost for you to join through my son who gave his life for you on the cross to forgive you, to redeem you, to make you my own forever. 
See, when we come to know that story and it's changed our hearts, we will leave this place with a kind of covenant love for other people that will say, no matter what, we're gonna go serve the world with the love of Christ. B.B. Warfield wrote this about Jesus and his self-giving love. He did not cultivate self, even his divine self. He took no account of self. He was not led into the recesses of his own soul to brood morbidly over his own needs. He was led by his love for others in the world to forget himself in the needs of others, to sacrifice self once for all upon the altar of sympathy. Self-sacrifice brought Christ into the world and self-sacrifice will lead us as followers not away from him, but into the midst of men. Wherever men suffer, there we will be to comfort. Wherever men strive, there we will be to help. Wherever men fail, there we will be to uplift. Wherever men succeed, there we will be to rejoice. Self-sacrifice means not indifference to our times and our fellow. It means absorption in them. It means forgetfulness of self in others. It means entering into every man's hopes and fears, longings and despairs. It means many-sidedness of spirit, multiform activity, multiplicity of sympathies. It means richness of development. It means not that we should live one life, but a thousand lives, binding ourselves to a thousand souls by the filaments of so loving a sympathy that their lives become ours. Wouldn't that be amazing if that's what we were known for? One might ask, how did B.B. Warfield learn to love like this? It turns out that on the eve of his honeymoon while waiting on a train platform with his new bride, lightning struck his bride and she became an invalid for the rest of her life. All B.B. Warfield knew was a, a, a wife who could not do anything other than be loved. And he learned in the trenches how to truly love so that he could understand the love of Christ in a way few understand. Some of you are in the trenches. You need the love of Christ poured out into your hopelessness. Usually we end a series with a Q&A and I'm not, I chose not to do that this time because I just sensed I was supposed to do something different. I was hoping that at the end of the series you, you would be saying to yourself, I want that. I want fullness. I want restoration. I want healing. I want the fullness of God in my life. And so I want to give you the opportunity to receive prayer today. Now we're not going to wait till the end. We're going to do it right after the, we receive the offering and, and we, we begin to come to communion. Some of you, and we're gonna have people over here to pray with you, some of you are going like, I've never come to Jesus. I've never invited God to forgive me of my sins through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for me. I've never experienced him pour out his spirit into my life. I've been here for a long time just going like, when? When will it be? When will it be today? Today is the day for you. There's others, others of you go, I feel spiritually barren. I just, I need, I need the love of Christ in my life right now. I'm overwhelmed, I'm weary, I'm dry. I don't know what it is, but receive prayer. We're, we want you to receive prayer today in whatever need you have. Well, I even have communion over there so you can take communion and receive prayer. On this side, there's gonna be some of us, my wife and I included, who walk through infertility. And there's some of you in the room going like, it's been a long season, just hoping, wanting, waiting. And we want to pray that God would take your barrenness and give you fruitfulness. So we want to join you in that. So there'll be two places you can go to prayer. And maybe you're here today and you're like, I don't feel good coming and doing communion in a, in a group. 
You can also go there and just take communion alone. If you'd like, they'll serve it to you. But I want to end with us coming to God and saying, God, would you fill us? Okay? So let me pray for you. And those who receive the offering, would you come forward as well? Father, what a great story of your faithful love in our brokenness and need. Would you come and meet us in this place with your presence and would you fulfill the longing of our soul with your fullness? We invite you now in this time of prayer to move, uh, to have your way, to accomplish your purposes. And Lord, we, we trust that you will work and move according to your will. In Jesus' name, amen.